Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. This is November 2019, episode 123. We're talking with Rose Bonsek, a teacher, director, author, and consultant who produces the U.S. version of GI60. That stands for Gone in 60 Seconds, and it is an annual festival of plays that lasts no more than 60 seconds. We're going to talk about that as well as her three soon-to-be-four books, her 30-year teaching career at Brooklyn College, and how theater can help you prepare for the vicissitudes of later life. We're getting very deep with that one. We started off, however, with the concept of telling a story in less than a minute. The concept of writing a one-minute play, I mean, that's a whole new beast in the works. And yes. you've been running the U.S. version of the GI-60, which is Gone in 60 Seconds, mm-hmm. a play festival, uh, for a number of years. How did you get involved in this? And um, tell well, me sorry, some very ahead. interesting stories about this, because this is, I mean, a 60-second play that's almost inconceivable. Well, and it's funny, I was just talking to a playwright friend yesterday who said, uh, we've done his plays a few times in Gone in 60, and he said, you know, in the weeks leading up to the deadline, there'll be a play where I'm sweating over it, and I'm crafting it, and putting, you know, hours of work into it. Then, like, 11.30 at night, on the night of the deadline, a half an hour to go, I go, well, let me just write one more. And he goes, any time I've been selected, it's that one. (laughs) That has ended up getting selected. Um, But Gone in 60 was actually begun in England by my dear, dear friend, uh, Steve Ansel, back in 2003. He was head of educational outreach at a theater way up in northern Yorkshire, and he was traveling hours in any direction to do playwriting workshops and acting workshops and directing workshops. And he stepped back and he said, how can I try to connect all of these small communities who clearly want more theater, but, uh, you know... He's one person, and I can't get them all together because, you know, up in Yorkshire, there's a lot of distance in between, you know, one community to the next. And his idea back in 2003, he said, well, everyone seems to have computers or computers in their libraries, and everyone had cell phones at that time. And at that time, in England anyway, this particular model he was familiar with, a cell phone could hold exactly 60 seconds of video. So he went from creating a, I think it was a two-minute play festival to a one-minute festival. And I think that first year he did like 100 plays, and they filmed it. And he went, well, huh, well, we can share the footage with all the communities. So he created a website. As he likes to say, he was posting Gone in 60 plays, I think, four months before YouTube came into existence. And uh, I, I... I haven't checked that fact, but I would believe Steve absolutely on that Ooh. fact. And um, and then, his, you know, the thinking evolved, and he said, well, if we can do this for these communities, why can't we do it internationally? Um, and Steve and I had worked together several summers back in the early 90s, and so in early 2005 he reached out to me and said, hey, do you think you and Brooklyn College would want to host a U.S. leg of this? And I had no idea what it was, but Steve, is he's somebody you should interview at some point, to be quite honest. He's just got one of those great creative brains and spirits that when he says, hey, you want to do this project, you just say, yes, 
yes, yes, and when, you know. <laughs> so, um, so we had no idea what we were getting into. So that first year we were doing it together, big call for submissions. And that first year, when I tell you, we, I, I would have to go back, but it must have been close to a 1,000 submissions just in that first year. Wow. And it was a fascinating process to read and read and read. And each so we said, well, we don't know if people are going to show up for this, so we only planned to do it for one night at Brooklyn College. And, I mean, I've left Brooklyn College. They can't do anything to me now. But, uh, you know, and I say this as the former health and safety officer of my department, but that night... That one night that we did that first Gone in 60, where we did 50 original one-minute plays, we had so many people packed into our black box theater. We had people in the aisles and standing in the back. It was, it was crazy, and it was this crazy energy, and people couldn't believe they were seeing 50 distinct stories back-to-back. And it was so thrilling, so exhilarating, and it's this brilliant concert for actors and this wonderful festival to bring in writers from all over the world. And we just said, okay, we, we can't, we, we, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I, I, we were all in. And so this, we, uh, last month we, was our 15th time as, 15, uh, as Gone wow. at 60 International. Yep, 15 years. How many years. Is that over 15 years? Well, funny you should ask. I, <laughs> <laughs> I try to do the math. I, and and in this, I will include Steve's first two years. Um, we've also done some special events. In 2010, we did a special edition, Gone in 60, that you know for a big ghost story festival in England. Uh, there's a, a youth edition called uh, Gone in 60, hashtag next gen. They've been also with us for almost six years. Uh, several years, a group in New Zealand was also joining us. Anyway, all totaling with all of the extension groups, we figured out it's at this point it's a little over 2,000 plays that, wow. that have been performed under the GI-60 umbrella. Um, but we've also, you know, and this is one of the other wonderful things about it, we've also had other um, teachers and theater companies and theater artists reach out to us, especially since we wrote the book, saying, hey, we, we would like to do more of this. Can you give us some advice about us creating our own festival? And so we're, we're always delighted to do that. And so, um, but the one-minute form has grown so much. And um, early on, when we encountered other one-minute play festivals, you know, there was some hubbub about, well, we're the first. No, we're the first. No, we're the... Mm. And, you know, and, and, and again, this is in the book, but in doing my research, I found out, I found a collection of one-minute plays that was published in, wait for it, 1937. So the form has been around for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I can see why maybe it never took off. Um, and it's been an exhilarating experience because it brings together playwrights from all over the world. Um, it, it creates these global relationships with, you know, actors, directors, playwrights, because a lot of it can happen through the technology. And yeah. we live stream the event. Um, and we perform it live. We live stream it. And then the footage is later edited down to single play format. So this That's way the playwrights can have... It's a lot of work, and we are all volunteer. <laughs> um, well, of course because, you are, yeah. It's theater. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we've, um, 
you know, at Brooklyn College, you know, a lot of the proceeds goes to scholarship funds, you know, after, you know, you take care of production costs, of course. Um, and, you know, we, ha- we bring in um, professional actors who serve as mentors to the students. And so there's so many different facets of Gone at 60 that make it such a fun project but, um, and such a fun collaborative experience. Um, but it's, it's, it's wacky. And, yeah. um, Playwrights tell our, our playwright colleagues tell us that they find it so challenging to. They find it sometimes they've told us they find it much more challenging to try to write a one minute story than a ten minute or a fifteen minute story. I but agree I agree with that. Uh, it's uh, when I first heard about it, I thought, okay, well at least it's over fast. Uh, <laughs> but I also thought because I mean, again, you know, I'm 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 a playwright and. I grew up with the thou shalt write full length plays and get them produced on off Broadway. Yeah. Well, that's you know that that whole thing, and then we went yeah. to the ten minute plays, which was okay, pretty much write a scene that stands completely on its own, but mm-hmm. sixty seconds to say something because you have to say something. It has to be yes. a moment that A, stands on its own, and B, resonates. And I think a lot of us have problems with, we're going to cram as much into this moment as we can. It's like like trying to pack your suitcase when you're returning from (laughs) whatever, okay? That's a great metaphor. Yeah. I I would add to that list that that it has to tell the story. I'm sorry, go ahead. How do you do that? I mean, how do you make a moment like that or should you even try to make a moment in such a short period of time well i mean my my short answer is should you yes because we're surrounded by those moments all the time and what are the stories in our lives that we remember most we yes we remember the entirety of the story but we can trace within that story a single moment within that where something pivoted something shifted, something resonated, something changed. And the events of the who, what, where, when is simply what surrounds that moment that hit us in our gut, in our heart, in our mind. And to me, that's one of the most powerful things about the one-minute play because we've all experienced those moments. When they're encased in a 10-minute play, a a one-act, a full-length, we hopefully experience multiple moments like that but the one minute play giving that moment a chance to stand alone within its own story provides i think a very different impact um and then i think when you when you line up 50 distinct stories that capture a moment each i think you end up with a collective experience um that resonates in a way that's very different from a full-length play. Um, You know, a a full-length play, there will always be somebody in the audience it doesn't speak to. What we have found in doing the festival for years are are people, a lot of people who don't normally go to theater come to this because they say, I know I will see something that speaks to me, and usually many things that speak to me, but if something goes by, it's like, oh, not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. I don't check out. I stay even more attuned to what's coming next. So, so okay. should you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Well, that was kind of a can you? Yeah, I think it's still. Yeah. No. 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 Yeah. I'm. I'm. 
I love I love trying to answer rhetorical, <laughs> rhetorical questions. <laughs> Me too. But, uh, uh, well, but, uh, yeah. I, it's, let's sorry. I mean, go ahead. You said you just said something, and I want to get to it before I lose it here. Um, we have at least here in 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 the colonies. Um, uh-huh. A thing with this short attention span. Our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. And we have gone from reading news stories with pictures that stretched five pages to encapsulated moments that supposedly sum up the whole thing. That is what ha- has happened to us as a culture. And when you go to theater, most people, again, think, okay, full-length play, that's where I'm going to start from. Do I have the attention span to sit through this? And in a full-length play, you have a thread that starts when the curtain rises, all right, and goes through all the steps straight through to the climax, the denouement, and all that sort of thing, 90 Mm -hmm. minutes of one straight story. That is easy to follow, should be easy to follow. Uh, And then we've chopped that down to 10 minutes. But now, with 10 minutes, we can cram six or seven of those things into an evening, Mm-hmm. All right. Now we've got 60, <clears throat> 60 plays. What is, in your in your experience, asking audiences or being in the audience or have, watching audiences react to these things, what is their experience? Is it a positive one? How do they react to seeing, let's say, okay, Let's let's take it easy. Fifty plays, counting for set changes and getting people on and off the stage. If you're going to do this in an hour, how mm-hmm. do they how do they ingest this? I'm so glad you asked that. Um, oh, good. Because for <laughs> because I, my experience with our audiences and my argument about the attention span question is viewing a collection of one minute plays actually demands more of someone's attention span and more of one's focus. Now, if we all came to see one one-minute play, fair play. I, 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 get, I, I get the argument. But doing 51-minute plays together, I love watching our audiences and then speaking to them afterwards. And to a person, they all say, I feel both exhilarated and exhausted at the end of the experience because I was listening so much more closely because in a one-minute play, if I tune out for a minute or two, I've missed a pivotal plot point mm-hmm. or I've missed a pivotal um, uh, discovery that a character has made. So our audiences share with us that they're listening more closely, they feel more connected, that they're hanging on to all of the details because they know this story is going to be short and they don't want to miss anything. But then by, and then by the end of doing that for 50 stories, they're like, yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a great fun release. And many of them tell us, I can't wait to watch this online because I know there was this play, this play, this play that I had some questions about that I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more. It sounds and, like they'd be um, a lot more exhausted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a good way. Um, but yes, that's that's been, you know, that's been our experience. And, and, and you know, and the actors, too, you know, because we, we usually work with a cast of about 14 actors, and each person might do anywhere from 9 to 15 roles in, in a night. Um, yeah. Because, you know, some of the plays have casts of, like, a dozen. Some of mm-hmm. them are two, two-handers, so... Um, 
it's uh, it's it's a wonderful um, combination of sprint and marathon, I think, for audiences and actors. Yeah, it's uh, it is. That's that's a good way of putting it. It is sounds like an athletic event. <laughs> I think it's part of what makes it so much fun too. Is uh, you know, because within this athletic event, you have dramas, you have comedies, you have pieces that are all physical storytelling. We've had one-minute musicals that were brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah. the sty- the styles and genres that that the actors and directors and, and designers get to dip in and out of throughout the night is literally working every muscle available to you. And I think that's one of the reasons I've, I've always loved the form. And I think, you know, we've got actors who've returned every single year since 2005 and said, you know, I, I can't not do this this year. <laughs> it's, um, it does sound like a ton of fun. It's so much fun. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure on paper it's some people's worst nightmares. Well, you know, well, I have director friends. Things, yeah. <laughs> well, casting and, you know, director friends who go, I'm sorry, how many plays? Oh, no. Yeah. I'll come see it. But, uh, but yeah, but we, it's, a t- it's a ton of fun. And then, of course, it's also wonderful fun to then watch what our colleagues in England do with their different set of 50 plays and how different the sensibilities and are and the, the styles and the approaches. So Let's it's, talk about um, that. I mean, what, what, what are some of the major differences between here and across the pond? Well, um, I, would, <laughs> I would say, <clears throat> and, you know, and again, I would, you know, sometime, you know, you should talk to, to, to Steve about the particulars, but from where I've observed, um, I feel our colleagues in the U.K., do a lot more with um, creating the physical worlds of the play. I, I mean, I'm sure I've got that crazy American thing of like, keep it simple, two cubes, move on, you know, yes. etc. Oh, yeah. And 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 they take time. Uh, Steve calls it the ballet of the cubes. I mean, they also do cubes, but they create school buses and airplanes and pirate ships out of the, you know, and they so they do a lot more in creating the physical world of the stories. Um, and I would also say their physical storytelling is, or, or they tend to select plays that make many more demands on the physical storytelling. And uh, not that we don't, but I would say collectively, we probably have more um, like smaller, quieter dramas mixed in with our pieces. And some of them, uh, the ones that uh, they do in England, are more like involve the whole company uh, in any given in any given play and so forth. Um, they also rehearse very differently. They rehearse with their full company every single rehearsal because we're in New York and you know two thirds of our actors are also juggling jobs, other jobs and auditions. Right. You know, running back and forth to the city. We we do like okay, you and you and you, you're called this night. You, you so we. You know, it would be a challenge for us to call everybody for every single night of rehearsal um, and still be able to get the people that, you know, we want in the company. So, um, but yeah, but, we, but we've, we've produced the same playwrights sometimes, both in U.S. and U.K., and it's always very interesting simply to see, um, you know, how a playwright's voice is, you know, is interpreted in the English company yeah. versus the American company. And and vice versa when we do a, an international play right here. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the wonderful things about theater is you can take the same script and have it done by two different people 
and it's going to come out two completely different ways depending upon so-and-so's vision and so-and-so's budget and so-and-so's way of bringing something to life. Yes. Yeah, that's and, and one I of the things I love about theater. Yeah. And and I think this is perhaps why I'd, I'd encourage you to keep going with the one-minute form because I think that's so. It's, I think that's especially true for the one-minute form because so many of the playwrights they they spend that sixty seconds focusing on an element of the story and the key points of the story, and very often, I would say the majority of the time, mm, where the play is happening is up for exploration, what the relationship is, is sometimes up for exploration. So there's a lot of open questions that the actors and directors fill in around that story. Um, so uh, I, I think that that opportunity for a story to be so different from person to person to person um, and company to company, I think, is, is even more so in that form. Yeah, it just seems like an endless playground to me. Ah, oh, that's a great way to put it. Let's start a company called The Endless Playground. I the love Endless that. Play. All right. I've, I'm copywriting that as soon as I get off the phone here. Okay, uh, done. It's yours. <laughs> you said something a little earlier, and it went straight to the heart, my heart, and just kind of put a little bit of an ice pick into it. It's uh, You said when you were soliciting uh, plays for these festivals you, at one point you got over a thousand submissions or close to a thousand submissions and what's left of my hair literally stood on end for two reasons one I've been on that end of looking at a stack of plays that I am supposed to judge with intelligence and compassion and imagination mm. and being one of those scripts that I hope somebody on the other end is not reading at two o'clock in the morning after their fifth whiskey, uh, and, you know, having put right. their dog down or something like that. Um, and I am actually thinking of, with all my submissions, <laughs> including a little thing that says, please read this after your second cup of coffee on Saturday so you're calm. But how do you get through even 500 of these things and maintain? any kind of perspective because you can only read so many before you go play blind. Uh, yes. And here, here's what I would say. Um, I guarantee any playwright, any, anybody listening to, to this podcast, Steve and I read all the plays, you know, some years we only get around 600 some year, this year, I would say we probably got around 800 plus. We start reading plays very early, uh, well before the deadline. And I, I don't, I can't speak for Steve, but I personally will do like no more than two hours of reading at a time for the very reason you just cited. Mm -hmm. um, and and sometimes it's very, it sometimes it is very quick because I can see very quickly is this. A, is this a play we can produce even before we get to, you know, how do we feel about the story? Right. Because if it's a play where it is absolutely critical, I mean, we joke about this, but this was a real thing. A few years ago, somebody submitted a play to us that required, no lie, a human-sized hamster wheel to be flown in from above. And I'm like, 
I, I, you know, and so <laughs> I, I, that's our, what our fantasy book is all the plays that we wanted to say, what were you thinking? You do know you're, you would be performing with 49 other plays, you know, right? And we can only use the hamster wheel once, and you can't blow the budget on the hamster wheel. Um, so, so sometimes the reading goes quickly when there's a certain key technical thing or something that we say we just can't do it. <laughs> and, but... You know, and and in fairness, you know, some of the people who submit, we get a lot of submissions from schools, and some of them are, you know, younger people, and I don't expect, you know, young people to know the parameters. Sure, yeah. And and sometimes if it's a really good play, we will also email and contact, you know, that teacher or that person say, look, we, we were very fond of your story. We can't produce it. Do you have any other versions of this in which, you know, these certain production limitations would, you know, allow the story to be told in the way, in your vision, you know, without changing your vision or intention? Right. Um, so, so sometimes that makes it really quickly to identify plays. Um, other times, you know, certain playwrights will submit um, multiple plays, um, and so you start to get to know a playwright's voice after a while. Yep. Um, so, but yeah, I I I limit it to a, a certain chunk of time because you're right. After a while, and with so many, you go, whoa, what, yeah. which which one was that? And as you said, you what did you say? You go play play blind. <laughs> Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I you know, I think Steve is much better at being able to do something in long stretches. I, I need to take smaller bites and then, and then think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and also, you know, do we have the company that can do it? You know, do we have the actors in the company that year that can tell a particular story depending on, you know, depending on the requirements of the story? Yeah. So, um, but, you know, so those, those are all, yeah, that's true, I think, for any play. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I will say, you know, and, I mean, it hasn't happened in a long time, but, you know, um, well, I would say this. Sometimes there are plays that we read in that one-minute ver- section, in that one-minute um, format, where it's so clear the the writer is, you know, grinding an axe. Yeah. And there are other plays that we read that are simply not plays. And I'm like, they, they you know, there's not a story, there's no... You know, believe me, I am not a, a stickler on structure, but some structure, and sometimes that one-minute play will be like two, like two or three lines of conversation that simply lie there, right? And and we can't tell what the point is or what the story is, etc. And you know, and I wouldn't couch that as a moment per se because there's no event, and you know, and that's the thing. It's like, what's the event? You need an event, so, of course, yes. Yeah. yeah, but uh, but it is fun, man. It is. I will say it, it's it's tiring, but we have so much fun reading through all the plays and then arm wrestling for who gets to do, yeah. you know, which play in which location. <laughs> it does sound like a, a wonderful experience. Um, okay, let's let's kick over to a, a, a different subject right now. You recently retired. I'm correct. Uh, am I? I, yeah, I retired from Brooklyn College. Um, I w- a colleague and I who left at the same time were, rather than using the R word, we're calling it, we quit. <laughs> 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 but, but, but according, according
to the papers Brooklyn of Brooklyn College. We've technically retired, but, you know, okay, so much for my subtext, colleague Toby yeah. and I just say we quit. <laughs> but yeah, we but did, you, yes, we left. We were there for 30 years. Just shy of it, but yes. Yeah. yeah, and you were the program head of the BFA acting. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Congratulations. That sounds like a, a job I couldn't wait to get up and go in to do every morning. Thank you. It, um, I was... I was lucky. I, I know every teacher says this, but I had the best students on the planet, the best students. Um, I was so fortunate. I mean, when I first started, of course, the program was like, I think the year I was hired, they graduated exactly one BFA acting student. Um, wow. And the charge was build up this program, develop curriculum and do all that. And, uh, and, it, and it took a lot of years, you know, because... Brooklyn College is wonderful, but, you know, it's CUNY, and CUNY right. doesn't have the same kind of resources as exactly. others. And uh, But we, I, I felt so lucky. I felt, you know, whether this is a fair assessment or not, but I would feel year after year we would get the students who would were really talented but who wouldn't necessarily be able to afford an NYU or a purchase or, sure. you know, fill, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And, and students who also did not take their education for granted. So um, I, I just felt like, I, I, yeah, I felt so lucky over the years to just have students who knew what hard work was, were willing to work hard, were willing to take those risks, and, and were open and willing to, to, to open themselves up to, to, to play, to growth, to, to the ensemble work uh, that was needed. And um, so... Oh, I miss my students terribly. Uh, I don't have an iota of regret about leaving the job, but I miss the students terribly. You know, it was, yeah. it was, it was time. It sounds um, like they probably miss you as well, too. Oh, yeah. I, well, we had one of those very special um, senior classes this past year, and uh, uh, just an amazing ensemble. They were, they were really tight, crazy talented. Uh, they got ridiculously good responses from their showcase and you know and they said what you're not going to be here for our last year i said i said i said i know you won't get this now but how do you think i feel yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's like you have to you have to step away at some time and i said well if i can step away when it's killing me to leave these students then you know that must be i'm i'm being pulled in this other direction for very very good reasons so mm-hmm. it's not uh, easy to make but, those changes well, yeah. Mr. Costa Rica, yes. Well, that, you know, that's that's a lifestyle change. It's not a, you know, it's it's a little different. I want you started talking about your students, and that subject absolutely fascinates me because the kids who go to to, to Brooklyn College to CUNY, all right, are I'm go, I'm going to wager in some ways different from the students who go to other other types of schools who are these kids and well yeah i mean but if they're in an acting program or they're in a theater Mm -hmm. program they are in the business of telling stories yes and i find it fascinating to hear those particular kinds of stories who are these kids how do they fit into the world of theater and please tell me are they changing it Ah, uh, all great. Just make sure you remember that like three-part question. If I if I get if I digress too far, because no I think worries, those are yeah. all 
hugely important. Um, you know, the, their stories are so varied. The, the stories range from, um, you know, a young person who, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll just I'll just scatter shot. I, I have students who are a ton of them from single parent families. I've had students who have lost family members to gang violence. I've had students who have been homeless. I've had students who, you know, have, were like trying to work part-time jobs to support their families while going to school. I have students who are dreamers who, you know, the, the events of the last couple of years have, you know, cast, uh, you know, a, a, a terrible pall over their ability to do their studies when, when it shouldn't. And it's um, frightened death have, every day. Well, it's yeah, for, not only for themselves, but, you know, um, and a number of students for their for their parents, yeah, you know, for sure. their, their parents who are in these situations. I have a lot of students who are first-generation immigrants. I have a lot of students who are immigrants themselves. I mean, this class that just graduated, I mean, they their origins stemmed from Pakistan to Georgia, like, like Georgia, Eastern Europe, Georgia, uh, Peru, Puerto Rico, you name it. Um, they, they, our students are international. They are, um, they have incredible, you know, all of them. I, this is a funny thing to say. I, we all come to theater for, you know, there's so, always something about family that brings people together. And yeah, I think one of the unifying things is the importance of those bonds and the importance of that family and the importance of telling those stories. You know, our students have, you know, again, not every single person. Um, you know, we certainly get student have gotten students who are like, they might be able to afford an NYU, but by God, they want Brooklyn College. And they yeah. have very specific reasons for that, too, which is fantastic. Um, but they, you know, the, every student comes in with a potent and powerful story to tell. And one of the cornerstones of the curriculum of our work together was before you can tell somebody else's story, you've got to know yourself. You need to know how to tell your story. And, you know, and that's finding your voice. And then you'll be able to have the perspective of telling the stories of others. Um, there is, you know, because so many of our students have to go through so much struggle to get their education, again, they don't take it for granted. I mean, like, look, a student is a student is a student. Every, you know, you're 20, you're 21, you're going to be a chowderhead at some point. You're going to, like, show up late at some point. You're going to not do the assignment at some point. But, you know, by and large, I, you know, except for rare occasions, you know, you have a meeting. It's like, okay, can I make you a cup of tea? Okay, you need a granola bar? Okay, okay, what, well, why'd you call me? And it's like, I just want to know what's going on. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and then you have that conversation and you move on. But because they work so hard and work multiple jobs to keep their education and jump through hoops with paperwork on, you know, visas and, you know, international status, et cetera, et cetera, by the time they graduate, man, I, I again, I say this with respect to every other acting program in, in our area, but I, I can only speak for ours. I feel our students are so prepared, so prepared and so ready to hit the ground running in whatever direction they choose to take this training. Right. And some of them are certainly taking it in the direction of theater. Um, 
a former student of mine. I've been working with her. She's artistic director of her own theater company now. She's like seven, eight years in, and um, we've been doing um, uh, intergenerational playwriting workshops and bringing together, you know, younger and more mature playwrights and bringing in a range of actors to work on that. Um, you know, other students are you know, are doing Netflix series. And uh, oh God, one of my students who graduated two, three years ago, she's like on every third commercial on television. Hmm. Uh, another, another former student, he's, he, his work brought him to doing um, therapeutic theater. And he said, you know, what, I'm, what, this is, what this is and what I'm doing as a teaching artist is not enough. These students need more, and he ended up going for his master's in mental health counseling. And now, P.S. He worked, you know, he he did a year uh, at Rikers working with uh, juveniles and doing, you know, theater exercises and communication exercises. And uh, and now he's, you know, getting ready to take his test for his license. You know, it's and and it, so to go back to that question, are they changing yeah. things? I think. I would say, yes, they are, but I think they're changing things in more areas than just theater or just television, um, you know, because we have such a diverse student body, and now, thank, you know, oh, sorry, I was about to drop some curses there, but let's just say, thank the goddess that, uh, <laughs> that television and film is finally, you know, and, and, you know, writers and producers are supporting the kind of roles and stories where a larger swath of population among actors can get more work, you know? And yeah. um, so I think there's a lot of change happening there. I mean, we, I've got former students who are, you know, also now writers as well, but they're also making changes in communities by being teaching artists, by becoming mental health counselors, by being mentors. And so, um, yeah, you can tell I'm like a little proud of all of them. I could, I could, do a 10-hour podcast somewhere along the line (laughs) what what i'm hearing through all of this especially with your student who ended up going to rikers uh it's it's similar with a lot of these people that by going through this program or or a theater program uh that we are engaged in the business of listening to other people tell their stories and in doing so, validating them in mm. an open mm-hmm. society forum. Does, is that a little too, uh, you know, grad school or um, what? No, no, I, 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 not at all. Um, and, and as you said that, I, I, mm, I'm resonating with something that I either heard or read not too long ago. Um, or might have come up in a conversation you know, somebody raised that question, you know, you know, what is the purpose of theater? It's like, theater makes us feel less alone. And it's that listening to one another's stories. It's that validation. It's that, you know, it's that I see you, I acknowledge you. Um, it's I will tell your story for you. I will take that story forward. Um, you know, as an actor, I will, I will do my best to embody the personas in this story to tell it the best possible way as a writer i will do my best to take your story and give voice to it you know it's and in that you know and maybe coming all the way back that's probably one of the many reasons i come back to gone in 60 is i how can we connect with as many people as possible through story 
Yeah. And through, you know, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. Um, the way we assign funds in this country to worthy projects has always been a question under dispute, especially for those of us in the creative arts. There never seems to be enough cash to make the translation of our thoughts, dreams, and hopes there. We're always fighting for money. The, the, I think the number one job of most artistic directors is beggar. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you spent 30 years in the business of teaching people to act, to think, to react, to realize their humanity. What's the future when the resources are dwindling? What's going to happen to these kids? Mm. Well, they're resourceful. Um, they're resourceful. I think the dwindling... Yeah, the resources are dwindling, but by the same token, I would say that the ways in which and the modes in which young artists find resources is also shifting from perhaps from our generation. You know, NEA grants, forget about it. NISCA grants, mm. you know, it, it's a challenge. Um, you know, I have a number of friends who are, you know, fundraisers and exec counselor, you know, ex, you know, executive directors on arts councils. But what I see a lot of our, you know, current and former students doing, they, they do these they they do crowdsourcing. They do GoFundMe. They do they do online activities where they're able to raise funds for a project, or they reach out to companies to do a barter exchange. It's very interesting. I think there's some old-fashioned ways of getting projects done that are coming into being. Um, more smaller companies are reaching out to other companies to do. Uh, co-productions. Hey, do you want to do this with me? And that creates more collaboration and community. Um, and that all makes for a very hopeful future as well. Uh, you know, dwindling resources, is, it's always going to be a challenge. Are we in a particularly onerous time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, one of the reasons it was time for me to leave Brooklyn College is, you know, budget cuts, budget cuts, resources, resources, and and it just sometimes it becomes so challenging to do what it is, you know, you want to do with those yeah. dwindling resources. But I think our, you know, younger artists and the emerging artists who are so tech savvy and have greater access because of the technology to certain people in power, they're going right to the source. Um, they're being creative about it. Um, I, I spoke with a, a, a colleague a few weeks ago. Uh, she's a member of the Players Club here in New York. And in my mind's eye, the Players Club, Edwin Booth, you know, it's, it's all actors, playwrights. <clears throat> and she said, well, a few years ago we wised up and we opened up the membership to financial people and lawyers, etc. And she said the membership was a good percentage of those money people. And I said, wow. I said, is that you know, how does that, you know, balance with the mission of it? She said, she said, well, I hear you. She said, we had a lot of conversation about that, but to cut to the chase, she said, in this way, a playwright and a director can, you know, sit at the table with the lawyer of the hedge fund guy who says, hey, tell me about your project. Here's my project. Goes, okay, here's a check for $5,000. Boom. Mm. And so, yeah. And yeah. she said, so, she said, Mike, her company, she said, 
She goes, oh, we're funded through till next year because we, we, they created this place for the people with money who might be interested in the arts to be able to meet the artists in a more relaxed setting. You know, I mean, that's, you know, one small example. But, um, you know, another, you know, forgive me, but I have, I have to throw this example out there. Sure. Uh, an old playwright friend, uh, playwright friend of mine got together with um, two of her other colleagues, I think one who was a playwright, one who was a director, last summer when Trump was separating families at the border. And they, in, on social media, in a matter of a couple of days, they not only raised almost half a million dollars to help pay for legal costs and travel costs, but they, through the social media, they arranged like rides for a mother who had been sent to Arizona to get all the way to New York to get her child. They were able to access Casper Mattress Company, who then said they would donate as many mattresses to as many apartments or housing for for these families once they were reunited and resettled. And again, these are, you know, young playwrights and directors, but who are so savvy about how to connect, you know, how to use the social media, how to use these connections to raise funds, to raise awareness. You know, so is that something I'm nimble with? Not at all. But when I look to some of the activities that they're doing, um, I think it's simply, I think a lot of it is following different models now. And I think storytelling and art and theater will always find a way. It will always find a way. I agree with and you 100%. You, you know, whether that's an ancient stone ritual place in Neolithic Ireland 5,000 years ago or, you know, a little open park on the, yeah. on the Lower East Side, they'll find, they will find a way, and, um, and they are resourceful. Yeah, are. <laughs> when humanity gets down to the last two people, they will spend their time telling each other stories. And when only one mm. of them is left, he, they, he will spend or she will spend his time or it will <laughs> spend their time writing them down. Mm. I, 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 I suspect you're right. Uh, I suspect you're absolutely right. I'd like um, to think I'm right. It doesn't happen yeah. that often, but I'd like to think it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure much more than you think. <laughs> uh, do you go to a lot of theater? I mean, I, I don't know what you do, what you have for free time, but since you're so involved in this, do you actually go to theater? And if you do, what kind of theater do you like to go to? What What, what attracts you? Hmm. You know, um, it almost sounds like I'm cheating. I, I, <laughs> somebody once said to me many years ago, theater, you're either doing it or you're seeing it. Mm. And I, I, find, I find it very hard to do both. And, and to be honest, I think because I go to so many shows that either current students are in or former students uh, are in, um, you know, most of the time my driving force is, you know, somebody that I really care about is doing a story that sounds interesting. And, you know, I don't mean to oversimplify, but very often that's my driving force. I mean, once in a while there's something like, you know, I'm, I have a great passion for Irish theater and certain playwrights, so of course I went to see The Ferryman and such. Um, mm, I wish but I've, seen but that. I've, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, hey, oh, right. Well, I was going to say, I think it's still, re yeah, but you're nope, not in New York. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, you'll have to. You'll have to go to Lincoln Center to the Billy Rose Collection and no, see it I just someday. had dinner with the house manager for that show. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh. 
Well, so. have them tell the whole story to you <laughs> yeah. and reenact it over dinner. But, um, yeah, I, you know, because I just finished a spate of, you know, I, I'm working on a new book, and then I directed Gone in 60, and then I directed a couple of back-to-back stage readings. And I think I just personally go through a period of, like, the thought of going to the theater right now might feel a little bit like work, and I feel like I need a little bit more um, time in between things. And I know that that will shift again, but... Um, yeah, I've been I've been kind of deep in the weeds with my own projects for the last couple of months, so I haven't seen uh, too many other things. I mean, you know, prior to that, I saw, uh, you know, a, a friend. Yeah, I, I say former student. You know, so many of them. I've, you've been teaching for thirty years. Mm-hmm. You know, no, no, they're not kids anymore. They're in their thirties, forties, fifties. You know, so um, I, I saw, uh, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Christina Pitter, who's just one of the most amazing actors on the planet and she did uh, ensemble studio theater's production of behind the sheet which ran back in january february which was uh, you know a harrowing true story um some other uh, uh two other former students um oh my god yeah javon minter and uh ugo Onyanwu with um, movement theater and did um what to send up when it goes down and that ran in December and January. And I, you know, we all hope that that may come back. Um, so, I've, I, you know, I think going to something because somebody I care about is in it has worked pretty well for now <laughs> as, a, as a barometer. So, yeah. um, but, you know, talk to me a year from now when I get further away from my teaching career and we'll see, um, you know, we'll see where I'm at. It's all perspective. Yeah. You mentioned you're writing a new book, and I want to hear all about it if you want to talk about it. But I do want to mention you've got three other books out there. Turn That Thing Off, Collaboration and Technology in 21st Century Actor Training. Um, mm-hmm. If it were me, I'd be like, throw that thing out the window. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Then you've got One Minute Plays, which we've already kind of covered, but I'd love to uh, address that for a moment. But... The one that I want to talk about eventually, ensemble theater making. Mm-hmm. That is that is. Let, let's let's come back to that. But what are you writing now? Um, well, right now I'm working with um, my friend and uh, collaborator Mike Flanagan on a new book for teachers, and um, uh, this this book is taking the the, the processes of the actor and director and breaking them down for so that it can be applied to the craft of teaching is one of the biggest things that both mike and i would hear from graduate students or early career teachers over time would be i got so much training in how to do a lesson plan and how to do this and what to look for but i don't feel i got enough training in how the hell to perform in the classroom how to connect with students how to you know, what is that about? And I know so many people who trained as actors, who became teachers, who've said, well, my friend I was just talking to yesterday, um, who said, oh, my God, if I didn't have my actor training, I, I, I would have lasted about a day in my mm-hmm. classroom. And so that simply got us to thinking of, and, and, and this is for non-theater teachers. This is for teachers of math, science, you know, literature, you name it. Um, so it's being written with that lens of taking some very, you know, simple steps and processes that an actor follows. How can I apply that to my preparation 
as a teacher? How can I look at, you know, how I break this down? When I go into the classroom, how can I look at the student and follow the rules of my acting partner? Yes and. Make your partner look good. Uh, status work. How can I use those principles to connect with and strengthen and deepen the learning for the student and, um, and, to, be, and to become, a, you know, a, a stronger and more confident teacher in the process? So, um, you know, so that's, I mean, that's essentially, yeah. and we, we, you know, we're doing a chapter on, you know, how do you do that if you teach writing and how can you apply some of the principles there? Um, the lesson plan is as story and how to break it down and treat it like a story. What is, you know, what is the arc of the story? Um, and so forth. So that's, that's the, that's the new book. Uh, and that's, um, it's due to the publisher in January. So we, we have a little time. We've got, you know, we've got five kind of ugly drafts of chapters <laughs> and two more to go but, but, but we're not in bad shape we're not in bad shape um, I wish I'd had that my, book when I was getting my teaching license a number of years ago uh, oh can I quote you on that yes please <laughs> we're ready to launch okay. please yes um, my, my, I ended up getting a, a BA in, in, in education uh, ah. social studies and they taught us about this rule, and they taught us about that rule, and they taught us everything about how to teach to students. And mm -hmm. I walked into classrooms with absolutely Zippo about how to deal with 32 hormone-crazed 15-, 16-year-olds who want to be anywhere uh, but there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, mm -hmm. I was, I was the main star at the barbecue. And, uh, <laughs> but it sounds like your book would be something that would have benefited me uh, all those years ago. I, 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 we, we believe that's the case. We, we hope that it will be supportive to teachers. But, I mean, you know, teaching 15-, 16-year-olds, I mean, that's the true heroic teachers. You know, sometimes <laughs> all bets are off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I'll, I'll be one of the first online to buy that book. Um, okay. Well, I'll you know I'll we, we, we'll we'll probably well, get like at least two or three free copies. Hopefully, I could I can pop one in the mail to you. <laughs> we'll talk. So. We'll talk, darling. We'll talk. Okay. Um, we'll talk. Ensemble theater making. That's that's always been one of the most fun things I've done in theater. And I, it's I, I, a couple of softball questions right here. So, ensemble theater making, as opposed to what other types of theater making. And what's the technique for doing so? I mean, as opposed to having like one or two stars in a show and the rest are all you know, character actors or are we talking oh, about oh. eight actors that all share the stage? What's what's going on with this? Well, um, well, I'll start by saying my uh, my partner on, the, on ensemble theater making is the amazing David Stork, who is probably the best improv teacher I ever, you know, knew in my life. With I say this with all love and respect to all the other improv teachers mm -hmm. I know. Yeah. And uh, we had, and this was the first, uh, this was the first book that, that either of us had worked on. And, um, and it was a great experience working on it. Um, David's perspective coming from having uh, taught and run imp performance improvisation troops for many, many, many years. Uh, and, and was also a director, me coming from the angle of being a director and teaching in a more structured academic setting for many, many years. And, you know, um, the simplest way to say ensemble theater making, 
you know, it started with a conversation of saying there were, we knew too many people who thought ensemble, and when we say ensemble, meaning that bond that connects any group of people, whether the cast is three or 300, that so often it was treated like lightning in a bottle, like it either happens or it doesn't. And David and I, in our conversations, realized that we both had very specific and concrete things that we did with every single group we ever worked with, whether it was a class, a production, workshop, didn't matter, to try to ensure and cultivate those bonds of ensemble, even if it felt like it was taking up time because we, we felt that over the years we'd learned that taking that time to do that ensured a more successful production, more successful class, more successful bonding of the group. And so, so the book is a, it breaks down what, what is ensemble, the elements of ensemble, what, what, what are the ingredients you need for that collaboration, how you as an ensemble leader can become a stronger observer of behaviors and behaviors that are supportive of ensemble, and behaviors that are not supportive of ensemble, and not to say, well, we don't want that here, but then how can, what are some concrete things you can do to redirect those behaviors so that they do become a, a supportive and essential to the project at hand? Um, you know, the concept being ensembles come together for a common goal, and those goals are different from group to group to group. So how do you get that collective group working together for the purpose of the goal, not necessarily for individual gain. And so the, so the book is a real practical workbook, step by step, for how you can become more aware of that, how you can put things into practice, whether you're in a classroom, in a rehearsal studio, in an improv group. Um, you know, and there's some, more inter there's some entertaining sections where we break down, you know, archetypes of behavior that we've observed over the years that may or may not be conducive to the group bonds. But, um, but it, it, it's a really simple guide that tells you how to create ensemble, how to care and maintain your ensemble as well. How do you troubleshoot once you create that group? Um, you know, are there some ingredients that you need in every single group no matter what? Yeah, you know, it's, there's got to be trust. There's got to be commitment. There's got to be sacrifice. You've got to be willing to sacrifice your shining moment for the sake of the shining moment of the goal at hand. Um, but, you know, the, we all, you know, we explore a number of different ways because, you know, there's no one kind of ensemble leader. So I think yeah. depending on the kind of ensemble leader you are, you might be more comfortable with one approach than the other. Um, but this sounds like another book I should, I, I should really put in the mail to you, so afterwards you'll, you'll let me know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I have a lot we, of reading in front of me. It's, well, it's, it's, you know, I, and I, I would just say this really fast. The main thing about ensemble theater making is it really simply represents what David and I did, did in our classrooms and rehearsals over the years. It is all based on practical experience. That This one, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's experiential. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. rather, and we don't present it as saying, this is the one way to do it. It's like, this is what well, we it's, found it's that works different. for us. Every, 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 time, every time you get you know, actors and directors and theater people together in a room, the chemistry is completely different from anything you've ever done before. Yeah. And so 
part of what we offer is what are some things that I can do as the ensemble leader when I have these different groups every single time to still achieve the bonds necessary that'll be the scaffolding for that project and that story or yeah. that workshop or whatever that may be, no matter what kind of person- personalities are in the room. And uh, right. this is where the archetypes chapter may come in handy. <laughs> I, I, I love that phrase, uh, scaffolding. It's it's a perfect way you know, to, to describe everything, the, the structure that everything else is held on. Mm, you can you can tell I'm married to a woodworker and builder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't going to mention that, but now that you talk about it, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck with that book. I, I again, it's it's a, I look forward to having a peek at it. It, it sounds absolutely wonderful. You know, we've been talking Thanks. for an hour already. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. It um, flew if, by. If you, Oh my God! If you if you ever want to do a follow up about the uh, technology one, simply because of where we're at currently, I, I'm I'm happy to do a a a one on one follow up at some point if you You're want. On the list, Rose Bonsek, thank you so very very much for being a part of this today. This has been an absolute joy. Oh my God! Thank you so much. This is, it's been so so much fun. I so appreciate the opportunity to uh, to get to know you and the podcast and. Uh, this larger community. So thank you for that. I think this is going to be wonderful. Um, Can you tell our audience how they can keep track of you if they are so interested in doing so? Sure. Um, I am getting ready uh, without the help of my students to finally launch a website (laughs) sometime sometime in the next two weeks, yay, Uh, which will be Rose Burnett Bonsek, uh, B-O-N-C-Z-E-K, uh, you know, dot com. Uh, they can also visit uh, the Gone in 60 site, which is um, gi60.blogspot.com. Okay. Um, we also have a YouTube channel. So if you visit the GI60 channel on YouTube, you can see um, over a thousand plays from GI60 US, UK, or Next Gen, which, are, which is the youth group. Um, and you can search by year, etc. Um, and uh, you know, and I can make sure you know I'm on Facebook, so people can find find us find me there too. Wonderful, fantastic! Thank you so very very much, Rose. Thank you, George. I really appreciate it. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to Onstage Offstage. Onstage Offstage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffstage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world, Who'd make some great chat? Please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. (laughs) 